Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food. And eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. Today we're talking to Ashita Wilkins. If you're in Bristol, you may know her as With Mustard, a home cook and cookbook enthusiast. She founded one of the coolest eating experiences in Bristol, Eat Your Words, which is part book club and part supper club. Welcome, Ashita. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you for inviting me. Welcome to the uh, recording cave, or the, uh, <laughs> the recording studio, as we should call it. I'm very professional, it is too. And if you get tired, you can have a lay down on the bed. <laughs> Have a little nap. It's all good. So let's get straight into it. What is your earliest food memory? Ooh, I think my earliest food memory is with um, helping my gran, actually, my mum's mum. And I think she's the one that I've got to thank for getting into cooking and enjoying food so much. Um, Just helping her in the kitchen. So when I was little, my gran would come and stay with us for about six months of the year. And she would help my parents look after me when I was younger. And for me, it was great. As grandparents do, she um, would really spoil me, uh, especially because I'm an only child. So I got all the attention. And every day she would ask me, so what would you like to eat? And um, my family are from... um, Uh, West Bengal in India and so she would make these Bengali delicacies so I would reel off things like oh yeah can you make me this that and the other not realizing just how much effort is required (laughs) to make this sweet that I really liked or this stuffed parata or you know um some of these uh, things like uh, doklas, which are lentil dishes that you ground down and shape into patties and then cook and then put in a sauce and then add some extra spice, so various stages. So she would just cook this amazing food for me. So she would she would do it for you even if it was a recipe that was really long-winded. Yeah, yeah, and, and never say, no, you've got to be kidding. That's, <laughs> you know, that's really complicated. I don't have the time for this. That's love. Um, she would just go, yes, yeah, yeah, sure. And my mum would come home going, what do you mean you've cooked this? Because, you know, <laughs> Ishita asked you to. You never cook that for me when I ask you to. You say it's just too much effort. Uh-oh. So she, she, and I can't pick out a single dish, but it, it was spending time in the kitchen with her and her cooking all this wonderful food uh, that, that I think about. And so she was the influence for you then, loving cooking and eating out and discovering new flavours as an adult? Not really eating out, but but cooking and having that connection with my food heritage, as it were. Um, The other thing that we would do in the summer holidays, more often than not, we would visit my grandparents in India. And again, uh, she would make sure that I tried various seasonal fruits. She would always cook things fresh from the market Um, My uncle would take me out shopping to the various food markets. The fish market and the poultry market was quite eye-opening as an (laughs) eight and nine-year-old. Oh, my goodness. Um, Especially in the West when you sort of lose that connection. 
seeing live animals and, mm. and, and picking them and then seeing what happens next. But in a way, I think as someone who eats meat and fish, it's important to see that Definitely. connection and where your food is coming from. So I, I don't think that was necessarily a bad thing. But as an eight, nine-year-old, it's, mm, it's a it's, bit much. It's a bit, um, yes, it was a bit of a shock. So, yeah. <laughs> and at what point did you start getting involved in the cooking? Quite early on. So especially in, in, in India, she would help me, uh, she would ask me to help her with, well, in India and in the UK, she would um, ask me to help her out with little things so all those boring jobs you know give it to the small (laughs) child who loves rolling you know rolling these things into balls or mashing stuff and that's actually the way I I learned how to cook so for ages I found it really difficult following a recipe because I was taught to cook intuitively So when I was younger, I found it really infuriating when I'd ask, so how much of this do you add? And my gran would say, enough. How do you know when it's cooked? When it looks cooked, how do you know you've added enough spice? Will you smell it and you taste it? Karis is nodding her head here because <laughs> this sounds familiar to, to your French grandma. I feel like this is familiar to <laughs> anybody who's ever cooked with their grandparents. Yeah. That That's just the way that they they learnt and yeah, absolutely. pass it on. But being able to cook intuitively is such a life skill because it means that you can look at a fridge full of stuff and think, oh, I can throw something together out of that. So me and my sister are complete odds and she'll hate me for saying this, but she's just rubbish in the kitchen. And I don't know why, because my brother's worked in food. Mm. I love cooking and obviously I love eating. Um, but for some reason it skipped my sister and... and um, I'll kind of turn up at her house and bring the dinner with me because I know I think there was one time I went over to stay they live in London and she wanted to make leek and potato soup so we cut the leeks up and I said oh can you get me the oil oh uh, I haven't got any oil I was like oh okay um butter we'll use butter oh I've run out of butter so we had to fry the leeks in in water (laughs) because she just doesn't I don't know, I'm totally veered off and I'm now just being mean about my sister, but um, <laughs> she can't... I think that intuitiveness of being able to look at stuff and think, oh, I can, I could make this, I could do a bit of that, a bit of this. Yeah. Totally. Anyway, Carrie, yeah. so I'm going to let you ask the next question because I'm now waffling. <laughs> so now you are... You know, we're past your childhood. Now you work in healthcare. You have a little girl. You blog off and on, not so much these days about Yeah, not food. so much since my daughter arrived. Uh, you do a little bit of writing, though. Yeah. You also run a supper club, so you're the host. And the occasional pop-up. Yes, very occasional. So, <laughs> I mean, we want to know when you sleep, first of all. I, yes, I think because of the way, because of my job and also having a little one, I think I've become used to having interrupted sleep <laughs> and grabbing sleep when I can. And sometimes I fall asleep in the strangest of places, um, much to my other half's annoyance. It's like, why can't you just go to bed early and fall asleep? So I think it's because I have odd sleeping patterns. And and, and that's partly due to my job. And it became even more so when, when you have a little one who wakes up at funny hours. You get used to just grabbing sleep when you can. I find it so impressive when we talk to people like you where 
um, you have a, a busy job, um, you have a little girl, and yet you're still pursuing your, your hobbies as such, your kind of your passions, and, and uh, we'll talk about Eat Your Words shortly, but it is honestly so impressive, the amount of stuff that you, you pack in. <laughs> well, I, th- I in think a nutshell. part of it is, it sounds strange, but part of it is a way to let off steam, um, because my do- day job can be quite stressful, and I think food has always been a, a, a bit of an escape. Mm. And actually cooking and feeding people is, is, is something that I enjoy doing, not just for myself, but you hope that you can make connections with other people. And when you cook something that you love and you see people enjoy it, I think that's a really lovely thing. Mm. And especially food and you know one of the things um you, you mentioned the um pop-up that um I occasionally do with our, our mutual friend Arushi one of those things is you know one of the reasons for doing stuff like that is just bringing food whether it's Indian food whether it's uh, you know you've got a cookbook that you enjoy and love and it has got some wonderful recipes just giving people the chance to try uh, try something that they may not have had before mm. um mm. ingredients they may not have used or tasted it's just it's just a way of escape and mm. a, a way to sort of de-stress and connect with other people i think and i think i can completely understand that and one of the running themes we have when we talk to people is that food equals love in some ways and so i want to know when you want to share that love with people, what are you cooking? For me, it often ends up being food from my childhood. So that that's the food that means a lot uh, to me. And often, uh, you know, if people have the same sort of food background, mind you, I say that, um, but amongst people from a Bengali food heritage uh, uh, people get so obsessed with food so there are so many you can have I suppose in in any type of food culture you could you know for example there is some uh, a type of veg curry there'll be so many iterations but Mm. even amongst family members they do things they tweak things and and things are done slightly differently so um, it can often spark um, quite <laughs> passionate discussions about whether you've cooked something properly <laughs> or not. Um, so even even if people are from a, a same food culture, or particularly if people haven't tried um, Bengali food before, it would be something you know from my childhood that I would love to to cook and just give people an idea of of what home you know Indian home cooking is about because I think particularly in the UK for a number of years there was a very skewed view of what Indian food is Mm. Uh, so I think if I'm trying to share food with other people it would be something like that. That leads really nicely into um, us asking you a little bit more about Vela so um, Vela is um, an Indian afternoon tea brunch style pop-up that you do with our friend Arushi, who we've yeah. already mentioned. Arushi, you're getting some good shout-outs <laughs> yes. So how did that idea come about? The main reason we set up Vela was exactly 
what you know what I've mentioned already that there's a skewed idea of of what Indian food is like um just because people don't necessarily have the opportunity to eat home-cooked food and 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 restaurant food is very different and and it has to be very different because you you can't um you know many home-cooked dishes wouldn't translate um well to a commercial kitchen where you've got time pressures you're trying to feed x number of Mm. people so I don't mean that um you know I'm not necessarily saying that home-cooked food is better and restaurant food is bad um it there are different um requirements Mm. um for each um so it's more that you know unless you've got friends who are Asian you're not necessarily going to try be able to try that sort of food so I think Arushi and I we're we're not professional chefs we've you know we're we're keen enthusiastic home cooks who love food and it was just getting the food that we enjoy out for other people to try and on a smaller scale uh, in a pop-up type uh, situation you can make dishes that wouldn't work in a restaurant because you couldn't you just couldn't make things in that way and I think it, it was that to sort of spread the spread the love of the sort of food that we grew up with so um Arushi's family are originally from Gujarat so she makes Gujarati food and I usually make Bengali food often sweet dishes <laughs> Very nice sweet yeah. dishes, I have Very to say. Very nice, yeah. What would you say the... Because for people outside of, of the Indian community or people... I've mm. never been to India. Um, Australia has lots of Indian restaurants, but mm. as you say, it's very different sort of food. But for me, I didn't realise there was such a major difference. I mean, I knew there would be differences like there is in any country, but I didn't realise that there were such big differences. So what mm. would you say the key differences between the Gujarati food and Bengali food? So from the um, Bengali side of things, there's a lot more fish that's eaten, I think. Um, the um, coastal part, so it's on the east coast, and there are lots of riverways and canals and lakes there. So fish is a very big part of Bengali food. And often in preference, there would be fish dishes if you if you have a traditional Bengali dinner. I think in, in Gujarat, a lot of the food is vegetarian. You, you still do have some meat dishes um, from Gujarat, but I think you probably have to you know double check with Arushi um, but a lot of the food is 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 vegetarian based uh, there are a lot of it, it's funny there there are a lot of similarities so when Arushi and I have cooked food and eaten together often it's sort of same same but different mm. uh, and that's quite interesting so we on both coasts using spices and in, and ingredients in slightly different ways but I think the main thing would be fish and also the Bengal diet there's a lot of um, a big sweet tooth because sugar and milk products were much more available because of 
the Ganges Delta and the more fertile soil there. Uh, there's lots of grazing land and sugarcane mm. grows there like a weed. So that's a huge part of the sort of you know, Bengali diet almost. Mm. And I think as you start getting more uh, north and west, you start getting into desert areas and it gets quite hot and arid. So the type of vegetables available uh, are very different. And there's less emphasis, I think, on milky um, products within uh, the Gujarati uh, diet. I think that's what surprised me most. Um, Karis and I both came to the first Bella Popper, which was just so much food and all of it delicious but a lot of sweet things and again I guess this this kind of view of Indian food that you get in the restaurants and that's just not something that really comes through at all and it, well we'll put some pictures on the show notes because it was delicious. I think we got complaints that we made too much food. Oh they weren't coming <laughs> from <laughs> they were not that. coming from our table. And certainly when Arushi and I did our second pop-up and we did half as many dishes, we did sort of wonder how we managed to make 12 dishes for our first um, pop-up. Because I think we had six savoury and six sweet dishes. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the only comment we made was, oh my goodness, they've just how they've done this much yeah. food between the two of them. It was incredible. That is incredible. But we would never <laughs> complain about the amount of food you give us ever. <laughs> we probably were the ones at the end that were like, pass it down here, pass it down here. I think there were a couple of people who had to take a break and walk around <laughs> the block to make some room to, uh, <laughs> to um, so they could eat a bit more food. <laughs> and that brings us to some of the other events that you do. Eat Your Words. That's a really cool supper club concept. And I guess I want to know, where did that come from? Uh, So the idea uh, for that came about because I needed to justify the number of cookbooks (laughs) that I own. So when, when when I was a student, I just got into actually reading cookbooks more than cooking from them. And over the years, I've managed to collect more and more books. And I think there's a, there's a common thread amongst them. They often tell you about um, new cultures, new types of um, foods, ingredients. Some of them are almost more like travelogues and memoirs, which have some recipes attached to them. Mm, that's so, the best type of cookbook. Yeah. But it also means I often just read them like books rather than cook from them. <laughs> and... Um, my other half said, why do you need these books? You, d- you don't cook from them. That's not point. And, um, but, but because he's not into mm. cookbooks, he just couldn't really understand that. Uh, so I started backtracking it, but I, I need them because um, <laughs> I need them because I have come up with this concept. <laughs> so it was, it was partly a way to justify these, these books. And one of the things, as you say, it's, it, it's, it's kind of like a cookbook club, but you don't really need to know the book. Mm. Um, you don't have to have cooked from the book. And it's also a supper club. So I think the people who come to Eat Your Words, there's often a crossover. Some people love the book, but mm. have never cooked from it. Some people, this is their favourite book and they're making dishes from it all the time. Um, and the other thing with Eat Your Words is it's linked with 
one of Bristol's wonderful independent restaurants and mm. often it's a book that may have inspired yeah. um, the restaurant and um, some people go because they love that restaurant and um, people can just rock up for whichever reason and, and enjoy some of the dishes that we eat. So usually there's a menu of about six to eight dishes cooked mm. from the book by the restaurant so they don't have to worry about working with ingredients they haven't used before and they don't have to do any washing up you don't have to you can turn up by yourself so there are a lot mm. of people whose friends or partners may not be into food and cooking quite as much as them so you can just rock up and find like-minded people and just enjoy the food so given you have so many cookbooks yes and you're not quite sure how many you have at this point. No. <laughs> Could you give us a approximate more than a thousand? Oh no, no, less than not a that many. Okay, more than five hundred? No, I I reckon up to five hundred maybe. But you sometimes cull them. I've tried culling them, and um, I remember um, having that there was a market at Hart's Bakery. Uh, trying to raise money for charity and I tried selling a load of books and then ended up buying as many as I'd sold so that didn't work out very well I can't be trusted in bookshops either or charity charity shops, shops. charity worst. shops no I know but I, I can't know. give my books away like no not I. cookbooks I, I really struggle and I'm impressed that you managed to do a call because once they're in I've got uh, some shelves in the hall here and they're like up to the ceiling and <laughs> We had this idea that it would be, you know, shelves for both of our books, but it's just cookbook. And it's full now, so I probably can't buy any more. And I'm kind of sad because oh. mine are all packed away back home in Australia. And every time I've, I've bought a few since I've been in the UK, but I keep going, nope, nope, because I'm going to get in trouble for bringing <laughs> in more cookbooks that I too just read through. I don't, you know, sometimes I'll cook from them, but I also just read through and go, oh, that's interesting. But anyway, that's off topic. How do you choose the cookbooks that you're going to to cook with? Because you you sort of partner up with with Bristol restaurants. Yeah. Do you work with them and go? These are what I'm thinking. What do you think? Or yeah, it, it it's usually a mutual decision. So often the restaurant will reflect the sort of it, it may be a, a a book that um, inspired the the chef who works at that restaurant. Sometimes they reflect the sort of food that they're they're cooking anyway. So we try and get a good mm. match, uh, and it's usually a joint decision. So sometimes do you have than... to go and buy the book if you don't have it. Um, I think I've done that maybe on one occasion. <laughs> <laughs> um, mostly, I've had the books already. <laughs> so of all of the Eat Your Word events that you've mm. done. And this is a really mean question. Do you have a favourite? I don't think I could choose. They've all been... This sounds so lame. They've all babies. been great for <laughs> different reasons. The, the very first one that I did was Nose to Tail Eating um, by Fergus Henderson, which was they're no longer um, run by the same team, but, but Birch, whilst it was under, mm. under Sam and Becky's stewardship. And that that was nerve-wracking because it was the, the, the first one. Um, 
it was also amazing because I approached them with this idea thinking, oh, I'm not sure anyone's going to want to get involved with this. And the lovely thing about Bristol and the food scene is that people are very supportive and are quite, if you've got a good idea and they can see that you're enthusiastic, there are a lot of people who will collaborate, who will mm. help you out. I would definitely agree with that. Like yeah. the fact that you agreed to come over here this evening and with the podcast, we've definitely found that. Yeah, yeah. I, think you, I mean, you've interviewed some wonderful people and it's just, it, you know, and, and, I, and I think that's a reflection of the food scene as, as well in Bristol, that people are so enthusiastic and you can approach people. So, so that was a really wonderful thing, just them being so on board with the idea. So part of me was sort of pinching myself, thinking, oh my goodness, I'm putting on an We're event with Birch and people have turned up and wow, look at all this food. So that will always stay in my mind because <clears throat> that was the first event. There have just been so many that, because it's been going for about three years now mm. and, you know, I've got, Wolfish, one of my other Wolfish Bistro, they did the second one and they bought out, we did roast chicken and other stories and they bought out this incredible roast chicken on a plinth and, you know, we <laughs> ate roast chicken um, in a restaurant which I haven't really, you know, as in a whole roast mm, chicken yeah. carved with these amazing side dishes and so that was a spectacle. No Man's Grace doing the French Laundry cookbook and um, John's attention to detail, it almost was like California was in, um, mm. you know, the Sonoma Valley was in Chandos <laughs> Road. We did one at Bull Rush before they had their Michelin star. I'm not sure whether they would do one now. Oh, I bet they would. Um, but Favakin was the book um, that we had for that. And and the meal was absolutely incredible. Um, some of the techniques um, that George, who's the um, chef owner there, used to these incredible potatoes smoked in leaves and mm. various um, pickles and ferments. That was incredible. I think, and more recently, it's evolved and we... I've been doing events uh, with contemporary um, cookbooks um, and the authors have been there. Mm. And Karis and I actually were at your Olea Hercules Eat Your Words at yeah, so that Yeah, so that, that was the first, very first one. And, and that, that was, was a huge room. That was huge. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was an um, uh, amazing um, eating Olea's food and she's, and she's so wonderful. And well. yeah, yeah. yeah, and the way she describes so it was her book Caucasus so the way she described the food the journey she made mm. uh, discovering the food that was just so wonderful to hear and eat mm. it's made me really want to go to Georgia yes it, just yes. I mean, if I could jump on a plane tomorrow and go to Georgia and eat all their food and drink all their yeah. wine I'd be very happy I feel like that's the next thing that's going to boom because we've uh, spoken to another person for the podcast um he spent a lot of time in that area and some of his stories of the food and drink mm. just sound brilliant yes. yeah yeah if yeah. is there a book 
that you would really love to do an Eat Your Words event with, that you've been thinking about for ages, but you just, it's not quite the right time. We haven't found quite the right restaurant to work with. Yes. (laughs) I know you're going to tell us. (laughs) I would, so it's really difficult and I don't know that it could ever really be made. Um, but I would love to, I, now I can't forget, I've, I've forgotten the title of the book, but essentially Andy Warhol um, had, a, 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 had a, a nonsense recipe book. Wow. <laughs> um, and I've, I, I don't have an original. Um, I think there were only 20, I, I don't know how many copies there were, but something like 10 or 20, mm. which were hand-illustrated, hand-painted, <clears throat> and go for thousands, if not millions. Mm. Uh, but I've got a facsimile copy of this book, and the dishes are ridiculous and <laughs> very theatrical. But edible? They s- probably edible. <laughs> There's, um, it's art carrot. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't get art. <laughs> um, but th- there's some slightly ridiculous, fantastical recipes in there. And I would love to... I would love to put on an event with dishes from that book. Who do you think could cook them? Would it need to be someone crazy know. like Heston or... No, I don't. Th- I don't think um, there's there's um, a, a lady that I follow who goes uh, by AVN Curiosities, and she does a lot of work with museums and sculptural, edible art installations, almost. And I wonder. I think she would be the best person to do it, but I don't really know her and I don't know how I would even begin to get that off the ground. Well, you might have just asked her now. <laughs> we'll tag her in it when we yeah. I would definitely go to that. I think that sounds amazing. Yeah. I would go to that too. <laughs> I would hope so. You're not going to make us go and then you're not going to show up. <laughs> Wow, that was brilliant. Alex is doing the tapping of the wrist sign, which says we've talked too much again. I'm the timekeeper. <laughs> thank you so much, Ashida. No, I mean, thank I, you for I, inviting could, me. I could keep talking to you, and actually, I'm going to stop recording and I'll keep talking to you. Um, but you will have to go home eventually. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. Pleasure. And if you've enjoyed Ashida's story, you'll probably enjoy the other stories that we've recorded. So go to atthesource.com or search for At The Source on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter, At The Source. And if you love what you hear, we would love if you could leave a rating for us on iTunes or give us some feedback so that we can keep bringing you awesome stories and you can keep hearing more about awesome people like Ashita. Until next time. Over and out.